Hey y'all, welcome to Fast Facts for Gen Z. I'm your host, Callie, and I don't know anything about anything. Come with me on my exploration of the world, and I'll tell you everything you ever and never wanted to know through the eyes of Gen Z. Today's episode, a conversation with a teacher about the youth of today and navigating a changing educational climate. Today I'm joined by Xavier Adams, a high school teacher who is, full disclosure, not Gen Z. Hi, Xavier. Hey, how's it going, Kali? Glad to be here. It is going well. We're having a great day. Can you introduce yourself, who you are, what you do? Sure. So I'm Xavier Adams. I am a first-year teacher. I teach social studies, particularly world history and African-American studies. And I'm excited for next year to also be adding a Latinx studies class to the curriculum that I'll be offering. So that's a little bit about me. I guess I can throw in some biographical information. I'm from Kansas City, born and raised. Uh, Kansas City has the best barbecue in the world, greater than North Carolina. Whatever. Yes, I, I love my hot takes. <laughs> A controversial figure to start out. I believe, and I have to think about this to make sure, but I think that you're my first guest who's not Gen Z. You don't speak for the youth of today. But I wanted to talk to you today because you are a high school teacher and you've spent a lot of time and energy thinking about and working with like people around my age and younger. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly enough, my second week into college, I was approached by a guy who was doing some church work with students, particularly low-income students of color. He was like, hey, we need some volunteers. You want to come and join? And I was like, sure. And so that was back in 2013, fall of 2013. So I've been working with high school students essentially five months after I graduated from high school. Eight years now. Yeah. Wow, eight years. You're old. I was thinking, I... like, how old was I in 2013? I was, like, 11. Oh! <laughs> and here I was, thinking I was young. <laughs> you are young. So, having been in your class and watched you teach, I can tell how much working with students means to you. Like, you're very thoughtful about the way that you teach and interact with students, and you seek feedback from us regularly. In my experience, at least, that's not, like... A typical teaching style. So how would you describe the way you approach teaching? Going off of that particular aspect of soliciting feedback from the students, I mean, in a lot of ways, if we take public education seriously, to be providing students the context, the information, the thinking skills they need to navigate this world, that really just means that we as teachers have to give y'all what y'all need. And there's no mm -hmm. better way to figure that out than asking y'all what you need. I mean, I can assume a lot. I graduated from high school again back in 2013, but times have changed. I'm not Gen Z, so <laughs> what a Gen Z student might need to thrive is very different than myself. And I think owning that and recognizing that is important. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, beyond just like general soliciting feedback, I think my approach to teaching really has learning kind of almost as a secondary piece, which feels controversial to say as a teacher <laughs> you know I, I'm convicted by the reality that you know not everyone's going to go off to college and that's mm -hmm. okay folks coming out of high school choosing to enter the workforce immediately for whatever reasons whether it's you know the need for money desire to just kind of get the next phase of life moving whatever that is those students need something different than someone going off to college and ultimately I think what all students need is someone that cares deeply about them and so for me, that is the primary thing entering into the classroom is greeting students, saying hello, asking them how they are, and trying to 
to mean that in a genuine way. I think oftentimes we can get caught up in niceties and they kind of become hollow, uh, mm. but trying to preserve that intentionality with students for me is the most important thing. Yeah, and I, I definitely can see that in, in the way you interact with students, your, your word choice is very thoughtful. The kinds of conversations you start are, are very intentional. I value that a lot in, in my work with students. Our job is kind of secondary, like the, the building relationships and approaching conversations with, with empathy and, and compassion. I think that's really, I think it's a really interesting teaching style and not one that I've seen often. Well, and too, like thinking about, again, people might go to college or into the workforce immediately, but the common thread of that is you're going to be dealing with human beings wherever mm -hmm. you go. Even if you work IT, even if you work customer support, like you're still interacting with human beings in some way. And so mm -hmm. it's unfortunate, but the reality is like our world, particularly our country struggles to connect with other human beings, particularly human beings that are different than us. And that piece of relationship building is is crucial. And I think a lot of times we just kind of assume like, oh, as I get older, these things kind of become habituated. But in some way, like we need examples of how to do that, how to be a good human being. What does it mean to consider how someone else is doing? What does it mean to then also respond to the feedback that someone gives us to cultivate spaces for everyone? Yeah, totally. That modeling is super important. Like even if you don't reach every single kid, like they saw you doing that anyway, which I think is, is really important. Let's talk about your process of becoming a teacher. So you, you've told this story in class, but I want you to tell it again now. How did you decide that you wanted to pursue education? Going off of what I was saying earlier of having worked with students since 2013, initially started off in a church context. My dad has been a pastor for, I want to say, about 30 years now. So I grew up in the church. Church kind of raised me in a lot of different ways in terms of how I think about the world. And so I found it important to kind of continue that work. And so went off to Baylor University in Waco, Texas, studied religion and Spanish to kind of think about these things and to kind of continue that work. I was very interested in becoming a youth pastor, mm -hmm. but then graduated from college, started doing nonprofit work, kind of became enchanted with that world, did nonprofit work for about two and a half years and kind of just realized both the church and the nonprofit world are really good forces in the world when done well, but they are not as embedded in the daily lives as public education is, at least in this time. And so, yeah, just the reality that being a public school teacher allows me to see students five days out of the week compared to one or two times a week. And just being in a system that students by law have to inhabit um, mm -hmm. just seems to be- They're stuck with you. Just, yeah, they're stuck with me, whether or not they want to be. Whereas like church and nonprofit world, it's very voluntary. It's kind of come and go as you please. Yeah, you get, bound. A, you get a lot more variety of students uh, in a public school setting than you would in, in a church or a nonprofit setting also. Yeah, certainly. I mean, churches tend to be, I mean, schools are this as well. They tend to kind of be concentrations of the particular demographics of that community. But mm -hmm. Churches more so than public schools are very self-selected in who attends um, mm -hmm. that church. And I 
think it's Dr. King who once said that Sunday service is one of the most segregated times of day in our country, um, which is just to say, like, again, self-selection. Black folks historically creating their own churches as forms of resistance to oppressive forms of white Christianity that they've experienced in the world. And so that legacy continues. And whereas public schools segregated perhaps by AP honors in standard courses, mm -hmm. but at least you have more physical proximity within the same space that allows for potential for more integrated approaches to learning and community building. I've never heard of the like, like academic separations between students described as a type of segregation, but I think that that's a really good description of it. There's a lot of, uh, a lot more access to different types of, of students in public schools than in, than in church settings. So I understand why that would be appealing to you. When you were going through the process of becoming a teacher, that's not like an easy thing to do. Uh, so were there times where you thought that it wasn't the right path or you almost changed your mind? Yeah, I mean, the process of becoming a teacher, particularly the program I did at Duke, is very intense time commitment wise. So we were required to student teach essentially for an entire year while also being full-time students. That's intense. Yeah, it's like, okay, I'm a be a student while also teaching students and being a student in one setting is just like incredibly difficult. Throwing on essentially an unpaid full-time job on top of that is just, how do I have enough time for everything when one of these I already wouldn't have enough time for? I don't think this was intentional about the program, but that structure did really cause me to reorient what my priorities are um, in thinking about transitioning from a student to a teacher, particularly about grades. I've, I've shared this with y'all before in class um, that I think grades are dumb. Mm -hmm. They don't really have a meaning. They can have a good meaning if there's a system around those grades that is healthy that genuinely reflects understanding and learning and critical thinking rather than just regurgitating something on its test. But mm -hmm. because our current system doesn't do that, I do think GPA grades are meaningless. And so as a graduate student, I was obsessed with trying to get amazing grades. Mm -hmm. And being in that space of both a student and a teacher, it really forced me to like look at myself and be like, okay, you give grades now to students who are also struggling mentally like you are to aspire for good grades. Is this the best system moving forward for them and yourself? And what does it mean then to take seriously learning as a holistic approach to building a better society, which is just to say like mental health needs to be at the forefront of how we structure our schools and school buildings and GPA is not conducive to cultivating mental health. Yeah, so playing both the roles of, of teacher and student at the same time sort of changed your perspective on the value of grades? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I desperately wanted to be a perfect student, whatever perfect in air quotes means. I desperately sure. wanted the perfect GPA, you know. I mean, we, we all do this, like I did this, especially like complaining about the amount of work that I had, the unrealistic expectations of trying to be both a student and a teacher. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, more often than not, 
we make it through, but there's a lot of people that don't make it through, not necessarily with my teaching program, but public education, like mm -hmm. the demands that are placed on students, I think oftentimes is underappreciated by teachers. Yeah, so, just yeah. because we survived and got through it doesn't mean it was good <laughs> and it should stay that way. Right. And there's a big difference uh, between surviving and thriving. And For sure. If we're only creating a society, public school education system that teaches kids how to survive, then we only expect the bare minimum. Whereas we really should have the highest hopes and highest desires mm -hmm. for ourselves and other people. Yeah, I, I felt conflicted in my criticisms of the school system uh, recently because I'm a similar student to the way you were. I have gotten to a point where if like a, a grade isn't what I want it to be, I know I understand that it's not a reflection on me, but like I still really want it to be better. I don't run into that problem very much because the school system in the way it's structured does work for me as the student that I am. And I understand that that is a position that is exceptionally privileged and there are not lots of people who fit the mold the school system poured them into. So I have to be really conscious of that when I'm criticizing the school system, especially because, you know, I, I've made critiques before and people have been like, but what do you, why are you talking about grades like that? Like, don't you have a hundred in that class? And I'm like, okay, yes, but that's not the point. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's weird to critique a system that you participate so deeply in. That's very true. Sometimes you have to critique the system that we inhabit. I mean, just even thinking about what you were saying, like people saying to you, why are you saying anything? You have a 100. Mm -hmm. Again, surviving versus thriving. You can survive and have a 100. But what did it cost you to get there? Sure. And like, even if it if it cost me, if it didn't cost me very much, like I can look around and see what it's costing other people. And right. I, I can I can call out problems that exist that don't affect me. I have to, because otherwise, like, what am I? I'm part of the problem then. So this was your um, your first year teaching, right? A aside from student teaching. Yes. Yep. First year teaching. So what were your thoughts on starting that during a pandemic? I think in a lot of ways it was a both and situation for me, in that not having any real experience in the classroom didn't have me set up to have certain expectations of what school should look like. Mm. Because I was starting from scratch, I could already imagine new things. Like, I didn't have to say, all right, how do I make this cool idea that I've done in person for 15 years now work online? Mm -hmm. Instead, I could just start from ground zero and say, okay, I'm online. How do we make this work? Mm -hmm. I think that was a benefit that I definitely had going into this year. I will say the difficulty that all teachers experience is like feeding off of students' energy Mm -hmm. And yeah, the blank screens, which is totally understandable. Like I, at the end of the day, am totally fine with students having blank screens for whatever reasons they need. Uh, if you can learn with a blank screen off, you can still learn. And so it doesn't matter to me. But just feeding off of students' energy is hard to do when you can't always perceive it in traditional ways. But like things like the chat box mm -hmm. uh, in Zoom are different ways in which I think even students that typically were not participating in person then felt comfortable to either send a private chat or send a chat in the public chat. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, teaching this year was a marathon that I never <laughs> want to run again. And it felt like a marathon with cinder blocks on. That's a, that's a really great description of this year. Yeah. Yeah. So our school went back into like a, like into a hybrid type learning 
in like January or February. Um, so some students got back in person. But during that um, that semester where you didn't have any students in the classroom, if I'm going to go out on a limb, I'm going to say you didn't have that many cameras on. That semester must have been kind of hard <laughs> on the teachers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it definitely takes a toll. This is a lesson that I valued learning from someone that's older than me who said, you know, when you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, you still have the same insecurities that you did as a teenager, which is just to say self-conscious students, which we're all self-conscious, right? We sure. want to be accepted. We want to be liked. We want to be feeling as if we're doing well. That same self-consciousness that someone has as a student is also what they experience as a teacher. And so mm. not seeing screens on, having empty chat boxes really does take a toll based on my conversations on teachers to kind of question their own teaching skills. Um, mm. And so, Gosh, I can imagine. Yeah. Oof. yeah. <laughs> That's rough, dude. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all through, all through the first semester and, and the second semester also, I really tried to keep my camera on as much as I could because I I could see the pain in my teacher's eyes. <laughs> um, and it was, it was it was real sad. You know, starting out, it was really hard because I was the, I was the only student in all of my classes in the first semester that had who had my camera on at all ever. And I felt super self-conscious about it for a couple months. Eventually, it became normal to me. It was difficult to start off because I felt like everyone was looking at me and judging me all the time. And there's not very many places to look, so it's entirely possible that that worry was true. But eventually I, you know, decided that that was fine. But I can imagine that from the teacher's perspective, being that person on camera who everyone is looking at and probably judging, and also having to teach an entire class that way. Yeah, y'all have strength I don't have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if that's true though. I think if a lot of y'all were in our position, you would get the job done. I mean, I think teachers a lot of times get into the career because they care about students and that care can compel us to do things greater than what we normally can achieve on our own. And so, mm. yeah, I mean, showing up for students, I think, is what most teachers desire, even if they don't always express that or even if they don't always live that out. Mm -hmm. I would like to think that that's why a lot of teachers get into the profession. Mm -hmm. You'd like to think. I, I also think that that's true. I am I, I, I have a similar optimism. I have gotten better over the years of creating relationships with my teachers, even the ones who don't intentionally like reach out to to build relationships with students and just just to learn what makes them why they're here, what makes them do it. You know, some teachers like my math teacher this year, the pandemic and, and teaching online just hit him and he was like, nope, I'm not teaching anymore. I'm going to go be an accountant. I can't do this. <laughs> I love the students, but I can't do this career anymore. So he's not he's not teaching anymore. I mean, teacher burnout is definitely a thing. For sure. Yeah. yeah. So now that your first year is over, what are your like thoughts on teaching my age group? What are your what are your reflections? What do you think about us? Um. I am incredibly grateful for Gen Z's honesty and willingness to tell the truth, even when it is so full of shade. Um, I appreciate the way you um, constructed that sentence. I mean, but it is true. Like, you know, honesty can be delivered in a lot of ways. There are tactful ways to deliver honesty. There are kind of more harsh, blunt ways to deliver honesty uh -huh. but there is something good about expressing what you like and don't like 
And so I am grateful for that. But overall, teaching teaching Gen Z is funny. I mean, just the amount of times. So uh, I don't know if we've mentioned this yet. I'm 26, but um, see, it's he's just not so... he's not old. We just make fun of him for it. He's not actually old. Uh, I think a lot of the students would disagree with you on that, and I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> they need um, to get some some life experience. <laughs> we all do. Yeah. We all do. But you were saying you're 26. Yeah, and just like. It's so funny how many, I mean, it's, it's along the same line we just ended it. Like so many students like think I'm ridiculously old. So like when I use slang, like I remember one time I was describing something that I ate over the weekend to a student of ninth grader or a group of ninth graders that I had in my class. And I think I said something along the lines of, yeah, I had this food and it smacked and, you know, smacked being like, the food tasted good. Like it, mm-hmm. I really liked it. Mm-hmm. And the students were like, Oh my gosh, don't say that. And I was like, what is that term no longer in use? And they were like, no, people still say it, but you're old. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm old. <laughs> like child, please. Child, please. Yeah. Gen Z is uh, funny. And my, my, my thoughts about Gen Z are obviously heavily pro Gen Z biased. I live in here. This is my life, but hmm. it is funny how some people, think of people in their 20s as old um at the beginning of the school year did you have any like hopes for for how the year was gonna go or fears <laughs> hopes or fears i think what i hoped for particularly for the african-american studies class is that i mean in the middle of the semester i had to kind of like create an official course description of the afam class and i think i would also say this about education in general is that I hope it becomes a liberative space. I think liberation can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. And I was hoping that this semester, both semesters really, could be that for students. And, you know, liberative might just mean an escape from having to do the wear and tear of daily being in a pandemic. Mm. It could be learning more about oneself in the world and learning more about one's history and the profound legacy that one originates from. Liberation can mean cultivating joy as resistance to Mm -hmm. different forces. I mean, there are so many social realities and political realities that also blanketed this previous year of learning. And so Mm Joy is liberation. Rest is liberation, I think, is undervalued. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I just hoped that for me, primarily, that was what I was wanting out of this school year, is for it to be liberative for students. What do you think about that now? Do you think that that panned out, or do you know? Hmm. That's a good question. It's always good to reflect. Mm-hmm. Mm. Do I think students felt liberated by this class? I would say yes and no, only because I'm someone that tends to think there's always room to grow. Mm -hmm. But I I would say I do think students felt liberated, um, at least a little bit, because of some of the things that I read in students' letter to Governor Cooper. So I guess as a preface, preface to the audience, North Carolina has a bill that currently is sitting in the Senate was passed in the House, um, House Bill 324, which would make it illegal for public school teachers to really teach about 
the legacy of racism and the foundation of our country's history. And so I had students write letters to Governor Cooper kind of expressing their thoughts about that and what a potential passing of that bill would mean to them. Um, and so students that chose to write that letter kind of described the classroom as a liberative space. And so I was grateful for that. Students saying that the meditations and the journaling in class meant something to them. Mm -hmm. I see that as evidence that it was liberative. But I'm someone that deeply desires to cultivate critical thinking in students. Mm -hmm. And I think it's hard to do that in the online world. And so that's something Ooh, I look forward yeah, to for next real. year. I agree with that. In, in my conversations with my peers about school online, especially for students who don't regularly engage for whatever reason, it feels very difficult to like really like be engaged by the class or think about it in, in, in any sort of depth. It feels like you're just watching a movie, you know, and most of the time an incredibly boring one. Not in your class. <laughs> well, thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> I appreciate that. I'll make sure to throw in the A plus for you now. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. This uh, African-American studies class, this is the first time it's been taught at uh, our school since, you said this at some point, what, 2011? Uh, I think 2010. It was taught mm -hmm. 11 years ago by an incredible woman named Brenda McCormick. And she taught at the high school, man, I want to say at least 20 years. But back then, it was, I think, a minority studies class mm -hmm. is what it was labeled as. Um, and they actually kind of did a broader approach than what I did. And I actually really admired what it was. So they would talk about primarily Black history in the context of the United States, but also Native American history, Latinx history, Asian American history. What, what's interesting about that class when Ms. McCormick was teaching it, students that took that class could take it as a substitute for U.S. history. So oftentimes Whoa. when we think about, yeah, yeah, oftentimes <laughs> when we think about elective classes like the African-American studies class, it's like, why is this an elective? Why is this considered to be additional to the U.S. history class? But back then, they were offered full credit for U.S. history by taking the minority studies class, which I think is also just a good reminder of how we think about history. History is mm -hmm. not always linear in its <laughs> progression. You know, sometimes folks back then actually got it right. And sometimes we undo the work that they got right. Sometimes undoing that work is intentional. Sometimes it's unintentional. But either way, I mean, I would love to see that be the way in which we are giving credit for the African-American studies class, Latinx studies class. Mm -hmm. That would be super cool. Yeah. And you, you said there you're teaching Latinx studies next year, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's the plan. Currently scheduled to teach it. I'm excited for the opportunity to do that. And in a lot of ways, it'll be kind of a journey of discovering myself. So I didn't, I didn't find out I was half Mexican until I was like 22, 23. Oh, wow. Um, so like... For most of my life, I only thought of myself as black, particularly being from African descent. And <laughs> now it's like, yeah, what, what does it mean to be Mexican? Which is why, I mean, I don't know if you remember. Yeah, actually, you do remember this. But the idea of essentialism that mm -hmm. I taught at the beginning of the semester is so critical to push back against that there is no cookie cutter, authentic, in quotes, 
uh, way of being. Being authentically Mexican is really just kind of a fallacy in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to for you to see what parts of the history you you uncover that resonate with you and that you feel connected to. I expect that will be uh, an an interesting journey in self discovery. Yeah, and I think that self discovery piece is what all classes should be like. It shouldn't just be relegated to these kind of ethnic studies classes, mm -hmm. but students should be able to discover more about themselves. Again, tying it to the liberative piece, should be able to discover more about themselves in every English class, every social studies class, even mm -hmm. math. I mean, like people sometimes think in numbers. They don't mm -hmm. always think in literature. And so yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we are a story that we tell ourselves and we have to build that story in whatever way makes the most sense to us. And sometimes those ways are not positive. And I think that this, that school, that the public school system as it exists right now does a really good job of teaching students to think of themselves and, and tell themselves a, a, a negative story that you're not good enough or that you don't know what you're doing. I am hopeful that in the future there will be space made for students to learn to tell a better story about themselves to themselves figure out who they are and what that means um i think you used that quote for your yearbook i quote, did right i did yeah. do that yeah. yeah it sounded familiar mm -hmm. yeah discovering identity is thrilling but also a daunting task since this is your first year teaching how did you feel when you were hired for that class yeah i mean originally when i was hired i was just hired uh to teach world history and then through conversations with a particular individual uh, out of respect to them i'll leave them nameless in the conversation but this individual was very intentional about thinking about who should teach this course mm -hmm. um, not just thinking about who can teach it well or the best mm -hmm. but also thinking about who inhabits what identity in that particular space and what that might mean and what that might do for the students in that class and so i'm very grateful for that teacher who reached out to me saying hey this is a course that we're offering next year you know we hired you as a world history teacher i want to put this on your radar and i think we need to have serious conversations about who's actually going to teach this class next year and so that's really good that that's that's a really interesting story because I was wondering about that at the beginning of the year when I received my schedule and a different teacher's name was on the course and I was like okay yeah well at, at the time I obviously didn't know who you were but I, I received my schedule and I said okay yeah I mean of all the history teachers that's who I would have picked also to teach this course as it turned out you are teaching the course instead which is in my opinion a better choice not because this other teacher was bad but because for all the reasons that you explained we have to we, you know they were intentional about figuring out who would best approach this course in their own identity and in their their areas of expertise as well and in, in a conversation with a, a guidance counselor earlier in the year we were discussing the, the creation of this course and about how the semi-original plan was to have you co-teach this course with another teacher. Yeah, yeah, that was... the equity team got together and thought, hmm, would we do that in any other class? No, we wouldn't, actually. And I, I thought that was interesting. I thought it was good that the school was thinking about who's teaching what in those ways. I found that reassuring. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that story is exactly true. Uh, I would say... 
there's another layer to that. Uncovering the mysteries. Yeah. Uh, Plot twist, this podcast is just me being nosy about how the school system works. <laughs> <laughs> but also having audio proof of what happened to then hold people accountable. Um, yeah. Which is great. I'm yeah. coming for you guys again, school system. You can't get rid of me yet. Yeah. I mean, I've always said... I have it, no plans to come for them yet. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, well... I've always joked with friends, if my students one day decided to overthrow my class and protest me, I feel like I've done my job well, which is to <laughs> create critical yeah. thinkers that take their lives seriously. Mm-hmm. Returning to the story, originally it was supposed to be co-taught. I actually originally advocated for the idea of it remaining co-taught for this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was thinking the following years didn't need to be co-taught, but I have a lot of admiration for the person who was going to originally teach this course. Mm-hmm. And logistically, not logistically, but practically speaking, I was thinking about the reality that this teacher is well-respected mm-hmm. by students in this class. And mm-hmm. like you were saying, at this point, none of y'all knew me. And I think mm-hmm. that there was a significant asset in having a teacher who already had previous relationships with y'all. Now, of course, every class, you know, there's a lot of students that don't know the teacher and you're starting from scratch. But thinking about being in a pandemic year, being able to have those previous relationships to make the Zoom world more cozy feeling mm-hmm. is a good thing. Also, I, I do think thinking about the racial dynamic of co-teaching it as uh, a black teacher and a white teacher would be interesting given our current political climate yeah i mean i can't say what it would have been like but i do think that students felt empowered to say things in your class that they would not have felt empowered to say things in a co-taught class or or taught by a white teacher yeah uh, that's exactly right that's exactly right and that's something that i quite honestly didn't think of on the front end it would be hard to think of like obviously these decisions are so like top down um administration heavy that it sometimes it's it's difficult to think through all of the intricacies of how is this going to affect the internal thought processes of the students and how what how they end up perceiving things it's easy to overlook those things even in in a classroom setting because it's because it's internal because it's nonverbal but I think that the way students perceive a class and the way they feel uh, interacting in the class or the way they feel not interacting with it is almost like the most valuable information about how a class is going. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I was thinking about is that the co-taught platform would really offer an interesting window into the idea of reconciliation some people like to take off the re part because they don't think there was ever initial conciliation but Mm -hmm. i think that co-teaching format would have lended itself to different conversations also good but yes the empowering of student voices is key and i do think you're right that this format that we ended up going with was the right decision even though i mean initially i was like no i actually kind of like this idea for this one year Mm -hmm. to do that um and i'm sure it would have been fine you know like there's no one right answer there are a lot of ways to do something well or fine but i i like the way that this year panned out yeah this is something too returning to your question about gen z earlier i am legitimately 
so amazed by Gen Z's social consciousness. Y'all are more aware, in part due to social media. Like when I was in high school, I, I mean, I think my senior year is when Trayvon Martin was killed. But there was no serious conversations about that taking place at my high school. You went to a predominantly white high school, yes? Yep, predominantly white high school, graduation class of 313. There was probably like 15 students of color. <laughs> Going into this year, this academic year, I didn't have that clear understanding of how socially conscious y'all were. Mm. Um, Did we surprise you? Yes, in so many great ways. I mean, whether it's the terms y'all used and like were able to like explain ideas Mm -hmm. to me. I mean, even you, I mean, I I hope this is okay with me sharing, learning the term gold star lesbian. Like, yeah, yeah, I didn't know what that term was like. And I think that goes to show like to the listening piece you were talking about earlier, teachers needing to listen to their students like we can learn from y'all if we don't have the get off my lawn approach to the world um, Mm -hmm. and are willing to to listen and take y'all seriously as thinkers. I mean, I think a lot of times the way society is structured, it feels like I well, particularly given that you can't vote in this country until Mm -hmm. you're 18. It feels as though I can't participate in the building of what the society is like. But Mm -hmm. Gen Z is really like returning to what the teenagers of the civil rights movement were doing of being very politically active even Mm -hmm. before they could vote. I mean, in fairness to both sides, you know, since we are in a binary politically in this country, like, Mm -hmm. you know, people on the right, teenagers advocating for, um, you know, the abortion laws that they find to be important. Mm -hmm. Teenagers on the left, when President Trump is holding a rally in Tulsa, you know, TikTok users and everything kind of buying up different seats so that his audience size isn't as large as he actually thinks it is. Like can confirm that I participated in this. Yep. See? I mean that's <laughs> that's awesome. Like that legitimately is innovative in ways that, you know, a millennial like me was wouldn't even think to do. Like I mm-hmm. I appreciate TikTok, but I've never thought of it as like an organizing platform. Mm-hmm. to disrupt things in serious ways so like yeah i mean that's also the interesting thing about gen z is like y'all know how to use social media to be engaged in politics again before you can even vote which is yeah. admirable yeah i think that a lot of us yet felt very disempowered by our inability to vote in the in the 2016 and 2020 elections and mm. we just had a lot of <laughs> anger and and resentment towards the systems that we felt harmed us you know, we, we, we do take to social media and we, we use the tools that we have and we make them into tools that will serve us better. Yeah, I think that we just, hmm, we don't, we feel like we don't have any power and so we have to make our own. So one of my favorite Audre Lord quotes, hopefully by now you understand that Audre Lord is one of my favorite people of all time. I gathered that. Um, <laughs> uh, one of my favorite quotes of hers is, my silences have not protected me. Your silence will not protect you. And she writes this quote while she is thinking she's on a path of terminal cancer. She ultimately mm. survives and goes into remission. But she's kind of reflecting on this idea of like, there were so many things that she left unsaid mm. as a form of 
protection of self-preservation whether it's mm -hmm. her academic career whether it's you know not trying to create conflict in certain spaces to advance certain ideas she kind of reflects on this idea of like if i'm about to die of cancer like not saying those things didn't ultimately protect me from death either way i'm gonna die mm -hmm. so yeah i mean just the refusal like creating your own voice is so important and gen z is so effective at creating its own voice so what's next for you plans hopes dreams Whew. aspirations uh, <laughs> aspirations world peace world peace let's get it guys aspiration of xavier mine. said so let's go for it <laughs> I, honestly we got to we got to for sure um what's next for me hoping to go home haven't been home since the beginning of the pandemic so mm -hmm. i haven't seen my folks my siblings nephews and nieces mm -hmm. 16 17 months now Ugh. um Long so time. really looking forward to just hugging my grandma some yeah it's food D teaching summer school oh really um, yeah cool yeah teaching summer school so the grind don't stop for me looking <laughs> forward to reading oh my gosh i have been reading a lot for school which i'm very grateful that like what i read for school is aligned with what i'm interested in but nice. i have some other books that i'm really interested in reading um i'm in the middle of one right now and since this is um pride month i'm gonna give a shameless plug for a book it is felix ever after by Kaysen candler or calendar perhaps is how it's pronounced it's a book that is featuring a protagonist of color that is queer and nice it's a wonderful story it's a young adult book the story reads very well it's very vivacious in the way that it offers details like i mean i can't put it down and I'm grateful to have the summertime to, to start reading books. Um, That's great. Just for pleasure and not having to think about, how can I turn this into something that I teach? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it takes a little bit of the, um, the, the, the ease out of reading. And you have to, yes. to think about that. What would you say Gen Z wants the most out of public education? Mm. Does Gen Z want anything out of public education? This is a difficult question to answer because for me right now, the only thing I want out of public education is to get out of it. Uh, <laughs> but thinking about my generation, speaking for my generation as a whole, I'm the representative now. There it is. Um, That's it. <laughs> I think that I think that you're on the right track, like liberation, um, care, compassion. We want to learn like inherently. We want to to be interested and we want to have time to figure out what interests us. The curriculums of public school feel too restrictive and then people end up not knowing what they want to do with themselves and also of course pushed to like succeed and do succeed in air quotes whatever that means and do do the most and get into the best college and then you end up there and you're like well, now what? You're on the right track in seeking feedback and trying to figure out what each student is interested in and would like to learn and do so I think that the best thing that teachers can do is approach each student as an individual as best that you can. It's hard to think of Gen Z outside of my own experience. It's a problem I've run into a lot in the podcast of like, oh, this was going to be a podcast about like life experience from the perspective of Gen Z, but it's actually just about me, which is fine. Just not what I expected. Well, I think, you know, as you started your 
answer jokingly, you know, you can't speak for all of Gen Z anyways, and you understand that, but Mm -hmm. you are a part of Gen Z, and so you Mm -hmm. offer a window into one of many Gen Z experiences. Yes, I do. Well, thank you for joining me today. It's been a pleasure to have you. I've wanted you to come on the podcast since the semester started, but now that I'm not a student anymore, I finally felt like I could do it. It's been a joy to be here. I am grateful for all of your work this semester, the thoughts that you've offered, the compliments, um, your presence in the classroom. It went a long way for all of us. So I'm, I'm very grateful for you giving me the space to have those thoughts. All right. Take care. <laughs> you too. Thank you for listening to Fast Facts for Gen Z. Be kind to your teachers. They try very hard. If you liked this podcast, be sure to follow it so you never miss a new episode. This is Callie, signing off.